The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by CAPS Managing Editor Kobus van Staden from Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, today we're going to be picking up our conversation that we started earlier this week with Don Murphy from the U.S. Air War College on American perceptions of China in the world. And this was a conversation that we had with Don. If you haven't heard, the show was about China and their relationships in Africa and the Middle East. Today, we're going to be speaking with Elizabeth Economy. And those of you who are not familiar with Elizabeth's work, she is one of the uh, you know, she's really one of the the most important China scholars in the United States today and of our time. I mean, she has just written one book after another. She's really uh, an influential thinker on China. And so we recorded a conversation with her back in February before all of the drama that's happened in China with COVID-19 and also in Ukraine. And this was at the timing of the release of her new book, The World According to China, that came out again earlier this year. We unfortunately, because of all of the rapidly changing events, our show schedule got messed up. We weren't able to release the show in February. So we're releasing it this week, timed out with Dawn's interview. So I think the timing's very good, but I just want to remind everybody that as you're listening to the discussion with Elizabeth, it was recorded before Ukraine. And it's interesting to hear some of her comments as they do foreshadow some of the responses that China has had with regards to Ukraine. But first, before we get started in our conversation on that, it's very important to talk about some of the events that have been happening this week, especially in South Africa. There have been just devastating floods and rains in KwaZulu-Natal province. So far right now, as of this recording, at least 341 people are dead. More than 40,000 people have been impacted, either left homeless or have otherwise been injured by these tragic floods that have been affecting it. Now, from our point of view, the human disaster is one part of it, but it is also having a tremendous impact on China-Africa trade. Now, don't forget, South Africa is the most important country in Africa today for the Chinese when it comes to trade. At least 20% of all China-Africa trade comes through South Africa, and that is probably a low number because a lot of what originates in the Congo and Zambia does pass through the port of Durban. Now, this is one very important point here as well. The port of Durban right now is in fact closed. Not only is the port closed, but the N2 and the N3 highways, those are the main arteries that do come through Johannesburg to the port of Durban, but also that the trucks use coming down from the DRC use to bring cobalt, copper, all of these resources that eventually do find their way to China. And that has had a really big impact right now on China-Africa trade. And it's something that we should be looking forward in terms of the next three or four months to see if that shows up in the trade numbers. Now, we just got this week... Q1, that's the first quarter trade figures from China. And it's very interesting because they started the year on a bang. Total global trade, $1.48 trillion. The number one trading partner for China 
in the first quarter of the year was the Southeast Asian region here in the ASEAN zone. They came in uh, very, very strong. However, this was all recorded data before the massive lockdowns that we've seen in April and also, of course, the disruptions to the global supply chain brought on by the war in Ukraine. Kobus, just let me give you a few data points here that really show what's going to come our way in terms of imports. Crude oil figures in March fell by 14% compared to the same time last year. Iron ore imports dropped by 14.5% to China compared to the same time last year. March copper imports fell by 8.8%. And cobalt, uh, that's processed cobalt output, increased by 2% in March. But analysts now are forecasting a 3.2% drop in April due to plunging demand for EVs because of the lockdowns that are now in dozens of municipalities. Uh, an estimated 200 million people across China are locked down. Not just that residents are locked down, but also a lot of factories are closed. Highways are shut down. Uh, some port operations are continuing, but Cobus, it is, it's a mess. And I think between what we're seeing in KwaZulu-Natal at the port of Durban and also the disruptions to factory output in China, China-Africa trade is it's going to be a bumpy next few months. Yes, you know, at the moment, Durban is reeling. It's it's really a, a really bad situation. The um, the the human costs of the of of the situation is is really staggering. Um, and you know, there's there's been these I think almost instantly iconic kind of images being being sent around on on social media of just these Maersk um, shipping containers just like scattered along the highway, you know, um, because there was a, a storage uh, facility of theirs got flooded and they kind of drifted out. Um, and, you know, it was just this kind of like small kind of visual reminder of the the kind of trade importance of Durban, how it, it shapes trade from the entire continent out. And, you know, and, and the, the, the massive economic devastation caused by these floods. Two points. W one is, you know, I, I think this this compounds the already heating up competition on Durban. You know, we, we've seen, uh, you know, among others, because of Chinese investment, we've seen a lot of port building up and down, up and down the African coast, both on, on the, particularly on the eastern seaboard. But also now um, the, the train corridor connecting the Lubito port in, in Angola to the, the border of the Democratic Republic of Congo is already introducing more competition for Durban. So this is so. So I, th I think you know, kind of as these these crises and and earlier crises that also blocked down the Durban port last year end up, I think, is is ending up kind of making people look for alternative ports. So this is going to be a, a big economic kind of impact, I think, on South Africa. The second thing is that. This isn't just in South Africa, you know. Kind of, we've we've seen these massive floods in Australia as well. This is the, the this is a Southern Hemisphere climate change in, indicator, um, and you know, I think it's just a little kind of a little glimpse of of the kind of disruptions that climate change is going to bring to global trade. So you mentioned that this isn't the first time that the Port of Durban, just in the past twelve months, has been shut down. If you recall, last July. There were social disturbances that forced the highways to close down as well as the port. Then two weeks after that shutdown, the port was uh, subject to a ransomware attack. It shut down again, so three times in 12 months. And that feeds this growing impatience, Cobus, that I think you talked about, how exporters are now going to start looking for some alternatives. So just in the past six months, one of the things that we've been tracking in the newsletter, a new railway into Walvis Bay in Namibia from Lumbumbashi in the heart of the cobalt zone in the DRC. 
has just been approved. A feasibility study was just done. That's a 770-kilometer railway. Kobus, you referenced the Benguela Railway that goes from Lumbabashi to the port of Lobito in Angola. Also, Tanzania now has its design set on bringing cobalt and other Congolese resources to the port of Dar es Salaam. Very important development that's just happened in the past couple of weeks. The Democratic Republic of Congo joined the East African community. So there's a lot of excitement now about potentially taking some of those resources, bringing them to the port of Mombasa and the ports of Dar es Salaam. Again, trying to diversify and not rely solely on the port of Durban. So we'll be tracking all of this again in our daily coverage. If you'd like to follow what we're doing, go to our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com. Now let's kind of shift gears a little bit away from the topical news back to some of the great power issues that we've been talking about all week on the show. Again, picking up from our conversation with Dawn earlier this week, we had this conversation with Elizabeth Economy, absolutely fascinating. Her new book is The World According to China. And again, it came out earlier this year. This, again, this recording was done before a lot of the events happened. So I just want to make sure you're cognizant of that while you're listening to her comments. But uh, absolutely fascinating to think about how the United States and someone like Elizabeth is seeing the relationship with China. And I think one of the things you're going to hear in her, in her, in her remarks is that we're in very much of a difficult spot. I mean, finding compromise is not going to be easy. Let's take a listen now to our conversation with Elizabeth Economy. Elizabeth Economy, a very good morning. Welcome back to the program. It's great to speak with you again. Thanks so much, Eric. Great to be here. Well, the last time we spoke with you on the show was back in 2019 when your previous book came out, The Third Revolution, Xi Jinping and the New Chinese State. You've now updated it to the world according to China. What has changed between 2018 when you wrote that book and your new book? So it's not exactly an update as much as um, picking up where the book left off and exploring uh, the, f the final part of the book, which was uh, Xi Jinping's ambitions on the global stage. Uh, and so, you know, the first book, uh, The Third Revolution, was really about the transformative impact uh, of Xi Jinping on China's uh, domestic stage. And this really looks at the ambitions on the global stage. I think in terms of what's changed, uh, probably a couple of things. First, I think Xi Jinping has become more explicit uh, about his ambitions, uh, his international ambitions. Uh, and second, I think uh, there's a, a growing sense within China uh, that the United States is on the decline and that China is on the rise. And this is, you know, simply the inevitability uh, of this uh, transference of power, uh, which I think many in China had thought would come later, has come earlier than they anticipated. And so I think those are probably the two things that I think have, have changed most dramatically uh, in the past four years or so. So in, in the book, you, you argue that that one of the, the key ambitions um, of Xi Jinping's administration is to reshape the global order. Um, what would that reshaping be look like? You know, kind of what, what are some of the kind of main ways in, in which you see they would like to, to reshape the order? So I think uh, if you read Xi Jinping's speeches and you look at what China uh, is doing um, on the global stage, I think a pretty clear... Uh, set of uh, ambitions uh, emerges, and I think it extends across five different dimensions. Uh, the first is simply Xi Jinping redrawing the map of China, 
right? And he talks about uh, the need uh, for China to reclaim the territories that it considers to be its sovereign territory. So it can include the South China, 80% of the South China Sea, obviously Taiwan, but also as we saw during the early stages of the pandemic, you know, Xi Jinping pushed, you know, on Japan and the Diaoyu Senkaku Islands, pushed on the border conflict with India, the first deadly border conflict in 40 years, uh, and even uh, moved uh, uh, to, to reclaim politically territory within Bhutan. Uh, so I think, you know, we may not know the full extent of Xi's ambitions uh, in terms of uh, the uh, sovereignty, but I think he's made clear, as he has said on numerous occasions, uh, that in order for uh, the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation to be uh, complete, uh, it means, uh, in the first instance, that China has to at least uh, reclaim Taiwan. I think the second dimension is simply moving the United States uh, out of uh, East Asia as the dominant power and, and assuming that position for China itself. And we can talk more about that. But I think, um, you know, he's made that clear Asia is for Asians to govern. And by Asians governing, I don't think he means Japan. I think he means China. Um, the third dimension is an effort to simply embed Chinese political, security, and economic interests uh, globally, right, to have other states align their interests with those of China. And you can see this through the Belt and Road Initiative. I think you can see it also through more coercive elements of Chinese diplomacy, uh, you know, sort of influence operations. Uh, but I think, you know, China as a global power uh, wants to shape uh, the, the world around it in fairly significant ways. Fourth, and I think this is the one that is really just coming into its own uh, right now, is uh, some desire on the part of Xi Jinping for China to be economically self-sufficient while at the same time still being a major power within a globalized economy. Um, and I would point to China's Made in China 2025 and then to the dual circulation policies, um, as well as, you know, his effort really to limit the extent to which, you know, foreign influences can uh, come into China uh, as sort of an effort on his part uh, to, you know, try to ensure, you know, dual circulation is really about saying China can innovate, manufacture and consume all within itself uh, it still wants to export to the rest of the world. It will still import sort of needed capital and know-how. Uh, but by and large, he is driving toward a much greater degree of, of economic self-sufficiency. Uh, and then finally, uh, and this has always been sort of the, the, <laughs> the desert in terms of, um, you know, studies of China, but I think has really come, uh, you know, people are paying much more attention to it now. I think China's efforts to transform norms and rules and global governance institu institutions, uh, for example, within the United Nations. And Xi Jinping has talked often about his desire to have China lead in the reform of the global governance system. Uh, and I think this is um, a really critical area that is getting a lot of attention now, but, but previously had not. And that's an area that we spend a lot of time talking about because the norms at the United Nations, at the World Health Organization, at the ITU, pick your international agency, tend to have more impact in the global south than they do in the global north. Uh, and it, it raises this kind of discrepancy that seems to be appearing, especially in the coverage and in the writings of a lot of U.S. and European-based scholars who look at relations with China in a very negative, skeptical way. Much The themes in your book are, are very much like that. But what we see the Argentinian president going to Beijing, turning his back on the United Nations, on the, I'm sorry, on the United States and on the IMF and embracing Putin and Xi. 
30 leaders were there with Xi in Beijing doing a round-robin speed dating type of, of summitry with him. We see the Arab barometer public opinion surveys that show China to be more favorable than the United States. Now, there's a long history with the United States, so that's complicated. But even in Africa, 63% public opinion favorability for China to 60% for the United States. So there seems to be this discrepancy between the perceptions of China in the global south and the perceptions in the global north. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think it's important, you know, to distinguish first be among countries, right? So I don't think there's unanimity uh, in the global south or even in the global north, right? So if you look across countries, you see a degree of variability. I think also, um, you know, as I try to point out um, in my research, there are different sort of levels of concern. You can look in Southeast Asia in China's backyard, and they are far more concerned about China, uh, for example, than Africa is, generally speaking, in terms of China's security prowess. Well, that makes a lot of sense, right? Because we've seen China be much more aggressive um, and assertive uh, militarily in its own region than we have in Africa. Uh, but we do see concern in Africa. We see protests around Belt and Road projects in virtually every country uh, where there is uh, a Belt and Road country. Uh, because of the lack of transparency or the environmental externalities or the fact that China doesn't use enough local labor. Um, so I, I think it's important to recognize there can be um, some popular opinions in some countries that, you know, resonate. It can change. You know, the Czech Republic was very favorably inclined at one point toward China, radically different uh, today. So I think, um, you know, sometimes as, as China becomes more known, as the impact of China's uh, influence uh, becomes more felt in certain ways, um, there, you know, opinions change. Um, leaders of countries uh, can be very favorably inclined, while civil society uh, becomes increasingly concerned, right, with safe city projects. What do all these cameras mean? Uh, these, you know, CCTV cameras provided by Huawei free of charge, you know, what do they suggest? Uh, you know, what does it mean when the leadership in Tanzania decides uh, that it's going to, you know, write its uh, internet governance laws modeled on those of China? Uh, I'm pretty sure that there are people in Tanzania in civil society that are concerned about that. So I think it's just important to, to acknowledge that uh, there can be differences among countries and regions there can be differences within countries um, about uh, what it means to uh, engage deeply with China. And then finally, I think it's, it's really important not to frame this uh, as a U.S.-China dichotomy. Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, I love to point out is that, you know, in Southeast Asia, the countries don't want the United States or China as the top leader. More countries favor Japan, uh, right? Or, or other countries look more favorably to the EU, to the European Union, than they do to China um, or the United States. So it's not all about China uh, and the United States, even though I think we tend to adopt this framing. I was wondering what you make what you make in in the context of of this book of the recent kind of pivot in in uh, what I've seen in, in in several kind of Western kind of initiatives to focus on values. This you know we, we saw it most strongly on you know kind of on um, uh, you know in in the Biden administration's kind of focus on like is the summit for democracy and then you know kind of focus on like-minded democracies working together um, to contain Chinese influence and then also the kind of insertion of this kind of like values language and a lot of even in infrastructure you know kind of uh, provision projects and so on. How successful do you think this kind of framing of shared values actually is? 
to to kind of to 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 kind of to bolster this kind of a unified response to China. Well, I think you know China itself is what has provoked um, this narrative that has emerged um, among democracies, right? And it's done it in part. I think the China's behavior during COVID. Um, you know, and its wolf warrior diplomacy, its coercive actions in terms of trying to, you know, insist that countries, you know, thank them uh, for their, uh, you know, uh, personal protective equipment at the same time as that they asked that countries that provided the same PPE to China in the first stages, you know, didn't acknowledge it publicly because they didn't want their own people to know, um, you know, sort of taking um, the boycott actions against Australia uh, because Australia called for an investigation into COVID. I think all the efforts that we've seen by China in the past few years to constrain freedom of speech uh, by actors external uh, to China um, have have begun to to, to I, think, I think have begun to. Um, it's caused a wake up. It's caused alarm bells uh, to sound uh, in in the West, and so I think that's one element of this. I think also the way that China does its development work, the way that China does the Belt and Road in terms of uh, the lack of transparency in its contracts, and uh, again the externalities, the failure to do environmental impact assessments or social impact assessments. I think these two um, have brought to light the difference. Uh, in China's system. Yes, it brings rapid economic development, but it's the China model exported, right, with all the externalities associated with that. Uh, and, you know, so I think it's, again, something that uh, countries are, um, you know, are coming to appreciate in ways that they didn't necessarily when China launched the Belt and Road back in 2013. Uh, even when you look at something as seemingly benign as Confucius Institutes, you know, where um, we've seen an enormous rollback in Confucius Institutes uh, in um, a lot of democratic countries. Why? Not because countries didn't appreciate uh, the um, support that China was giving for Chinese language instruction and and sort of cultural exchange uh, that that came with these Confucius Institutes, but because you know China insisted that the contracts remain secret, that it choose the teachers and the curriculum. I mean, these are governance procedures that you know, no Western university had ever granted to an outside uh, actor. And so, again, there's sort of a wake-up call that China was doing business in a way that was antithetical uh, to democratic norms. And then I think you can look in the United Nations, um, uh, since you raised it uh, earlier, uh, Eric, and and see, you know, China's efforts, for example, to introduce new norms uh, in um, you know, internet governance, right? Talking about new IP. So basically the idea that the state will play a much larger role uh, in controlling the internet, not only controlling the internet, but controlling uh, any person's uh, connection to the internet through any device, right? And giving it uh, a, a sort of an an off command switch where a state can simply stop the connection. So I think these are the types of changes that we see China bringing. They're subtle. They eat away at the edges. They're difficult to see uh, potentially right up front. Uh, but over time, I think they've um, come together and, and caused a lot of consternation uh, in many democratic countries. Yeah, there is. That's a great word for it, consternation. And one of the themes of angst is that China wants to reorient the international order more in its favor. And I guess the part that I'm struggling with is that China is 
the second largest economy, soon to become the largest economy. And we've seen over the past three, four, five hundred years that the largest economy in the world generally gets to make the rules for everybody else. So it's only natural that when the British were the largest economy in the world during the imperial era, they set the standards. When the Americans were in the post-war era, we set the standards. Now China wants to reorient the international order to better suit its interests. That kind of makes sense on one level, given past history. What would a more optimal outcome look like for the United States if we weren't as in such a confrontation with China and Xi Jinping? And again, you pointed out it's not simply a U.S. China thing, but right now, any compromises to American power will come at its expense. And so what does a more optimal outcome look like if we were to compromise together? So I think that should be understood in in two different ways. I think first, there's the compromise on norms and values that sort of I just discussed. I don't think there's room for a compromise on that front. You know, there's there was a, a sort of a narrative that emerged um, after Xi Jinping in, in 2017 talked about you know, China serving as a model uh, for other countries that, you know, didn't want to follow you know, models in, in the West, sort of market democracies, um, that it's China just wanted to make the world safe for autocracy. That was the title of a foreign affairs piece. But if you really think about that, a world safe for autocracy means a world that is not safe for democracy, right? So when China believes that it can, uh, again, constrain free speech outside its borders, uh, you know, as CCTV put it, on any issue related to China's sovereignty or social stability, we have a problem. <laughs> I don't think there is room for compromise there. Uh, because as I think we can all recognize, you know, almost any issue uh, in, in the mind of the Chinese leaders uh, can threaten its social stability. I mean, Beijing City was, you know, about to pass a, a, a regulation that uh, would have criminalized criticism of traditional Chinese medicine. So there's, there's virtually no issue uh, that could not be considered a threat uh, to a regime that is, um, that has built itself uh, without direct accountability, uh, electoral accountability to its citizens. So I don't think that there's room, uh, frankly, for compromise when it comes to those values, uh, when China is expanding them. Well, we have a them. problem then, right? Because they're not going to compromise. Right. But wait, I haven't finished. I haven't finished because I think there is room for compromise, however, when we look at working on global challenges to address global challenges. And so if we're looking at climate change, if we're looking at pandemics, I think this is a time when countries need to put aside uh, their differences and find common cause. Uh, and, you know, as the Biden administration has proposed, working on these issues and having them serve as guardrails, you know, for the relationship, uh, I think could be useful. Doesn't mean we can't continue to trade with China, right? Um, but what it does mean is that when it comes to these values, we have to push back and push back hard. Um, because they're, they're, I think, again, these, this, the expansionism of autocracy uh, means that there's a diminishment of democracy. Yeah, that, that's, that, it does feel like zero sum in that sense, in that, you know, that one wins, one loses. I, I can't see it any other way, you know. I mean, I think at one point when China was content uh, to be, you know, autocracy within itself, it was challenging enough, right, to watch the oppression of, of large segments of the Chinese population. And how do you understand what's going on in Xinjiang today, 
right? And the repression of, of more than, and the detention of, you know, more than a million Uyghur Muslims in labor and re-education camps. I mean, how do we, you know, as, a, as an international community, understand that? Um, so I, I think, um, you know, China is a major power and, um, and, and we need to treat it that way. Um, but when it comes to political values and norms and repression, um, you know, we need to push back. You know, so, so the other side, I think, of, of that of the discussion, I, I frequently hear among policymakers in, in, in South Africa and elsewhere on the continent, and I think it was kind of mo- like maybe like most famously kind of articulated by, by South African President Cyril Ramaphosa when he was asked about, about this kind of pushback against Huawei. Um, and he said, well, you know, the U.S. is just jealous, that that the that the Chinese managed to develop this before they did, to like how does one answer that allegation? How does one answer the allegation, which is I think very common in 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 parts of Africa, that 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 a lot of this is actually re- reveals anxieties among among you know kind of the U.S. and Europe about like a, a diminishment of their of of their kind of like total global power, and that um, and that you know kind of the, that the system they, that they set up even though it was super really good for the global north it was extremely exclusionary to the global south and that china's china's kind of reorganization of that system actually offers a lot of opportunities for the global south to 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 kind of to to expand you know their their access to resources like what what is the actual kind of counter argument to that so um i think projects like the belt and road initiative um or the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, you know, have the potential to be really important and positive. I don't, it, for one moment, deny that that China has the potential to be a positive actor in the international arena, and that some elements of the Belt and Road are positive. Uh, so I don't. I don't think that there's. You know, it, it doesn't have to be zero sum across the board, uh, but I think it's important. And again, we've seen right that even as China's development model brings benefits right to the global South, there are also externalities. Otherwise, there wouldn't be protests right in all these countries around Belt and Road projects. And so I think it's just, you know, the lack of transparency, you know, in the contracts, the uh, environmental labor issues uh, often associated, the debt uh, that sometimes accrues. I'm not someone who argues that this was a, that there was, this was debt trap diplomacy. I don't believe that China went out deliberately to entrap countries uh, to, you know, get access to their resources and take over their ports and airports. I don't think that's the case. In some cases, it has done this, but, but that was not an original intent. Um, but I also think that, you know, if, if China's actions have forced other countries to raise their game, right, to rethink the importance of the global south, all to the better, right? I mean, one of the points that I make uh, in the book is that the United States and its allies and partners need to have a much broader conception of who needs to be at the table in terms of writing the rules of the game. And that means reaching out uh, to countries in Africa and Southeast Asia and Latin America in ways that have not traditionally happened. So, you know, I'm not saying China did, hasn't, hasn't taught us an important lesson uh, about inclusivity, but I am saying that China's development model, both in terms of its economic development and uh, in terms of the political norms that it is, um, uh, that is, it is spreading, 
that these are not uh, sort of what the world needs over the long run. It's interesting because I was reading your book at the same time that I was reading David Shambaugh, who is a George Washington University well-known, very famous Sinologist, his book about the U.S., China, and Southeast Asia. So I was reading those in parallel. One of the critiques that uh, David Shambaugh made about U.S. foreign policy in Southeast Asia, and it certainly applies to Africa as well, is what he called episodic diplomacy, that you talked about a seat at the table. The big problem is getting the Americans to come to the table. So during the Trump administration, the president barely came. Ambassadors were not posted. Same in Africa. Getting Blinken to go to Africa was very, very difficult. So what that does is it opens the space for China to have it almost all to itself. There is no competition for infrastructure lending. There is no competition for Huawei. There is no competition for engagement simply because the Europeans, who canceled their summit last year because of COVID, but the Chinese powered through with lots of meetings with Wang Yi going to Africa. And I guess the point here is, is Europe and the United States really ready to come to these contested areas like Southeast Asia, like Africa and South America, where there is an ideological competition underway right now? Do you get the sense that the U.S. and Europeans are up for the challenge that confronts them right now? So first, I think it's important to recognize that the United States and Europe have not been absent from Africa, right? That many countries, uh, several countries in Europe and the United States have long been much larger investors in Africa than China has, right? And I think still uh, uh, several on an annual basis are larger investors in Africa than China is. China lends more money, but in terms of real investment, other countries are are, uh, more important to Africa than China. they also haven't been been absent in terms of you know things like uh, the provision of health, right, and other kinds of uh, poverty alleviation efforts and educational exchanges. They haven't been absent. Um, uh, I take your point that the Chinese show up uh, and that Chinese leaders do a much better job of engaging their counterparts in Africa on a consistent basis. I agree. Uh, and that's true you know, probably globally. Um, uh, but I don't think it's fair to say that the world hasn't been present. Um, they, they haven't had the they haven't made the splash with their programs that China has. Many things take place quietly. They take place privately, right? It's private investment. It's not structured by the government. They're not done government to government deals, uh, but they are there. Uh, nonetheless, uh, I think you're 100% right that in order for the United States and Europe uh, to compete effectively with China on the values front, they will need to engage more deeply. Uh, and I think that's uh, in large part what uh, the U.S. plan B3W, Build Back Better World, is about. It's, it's about what the Europeans have started to do in terms of their diplomatic engagement um, and developing more capacity programs around capacity building. So I think that there is, you know, Japan and Australia, right, are also engaged in Africa. So I think India, certainly. So I think there's more going on. Again, if you remove it from simply the U.S.-China bilateral lens, uh, there's a lot more that democracies are doing uh, in Africa. Um, but I think it can always be improved. 
So, you know, kind of one of the kind of through lines of the book is, is, is this kind of aggressive, you know, kind of attempts from China to, to build international influence in many different forums. And then at the same time, as you say, it isn't an unalloyed un- success. You know, like lots, of, lots of countries are actually pushing back at it. Like it's, it's, in some case, cases, it's been actually counterproductive for, for Chinese influence. So in, in the next decade maybe or so like like a few years like like where do you see chinese influence going like is you know kind of do you do you foresee a kind of a real you know kind of like push forward into into trying to kind of expand even more and where do you see the kind of like resistances popping up so i think um it may evolve again um and i think in the belt and road project for example um i think china will be more strategic Uh, Then it's been, I think there will be fewer, you know, roads and and highways. I think ports will be um, uh, a primary project. I think the digital Silk Road, um, its digital currency, the ECNY, um, uh, will become a priority project for China. Uh, I think, um, you know, I think new partnerships um, with Russia, for example, that we've seen emerging. Uh, you know, I only touch on this in the book in terms of the military um, elements of it. You know, China and Russia have long been supportive of each other in the United Nations. Um, I think we'll see expanding efforts there for China and Russia to build an, inf- an informal system of alliances, you know, along the form of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, but um, potentially including other countries, maybe from Africa and, and Latin America. So, um, and I think we'll see that play out as we have already in the United Nations, um, where China tries to build coalitions, um, uh, you know, of supporters on uh, its efforts to change norms around human rights and internet governance. So um, I think I think we'll see greater partnership uh, with China and Russia and potentially uh, efforts, as I say, to build a larger coalition of uh, authoritarian or authoritarian-leaning nations. Um, and it will only pose greater challenges for, uh, you know, the democracies of the world. The book is The World According to China by Elizabeth Economy, a senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. It is absolutely must-read material. You have to have this as part of your understanding of where we are today in understanding China's role in the world and the complexities of its relationship with the rest of the world. And as you've seen, it's not easy. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us again. It was wonderful to have you back to talk about another book. We look forward to having you back in a couple years with your next book. (laughs) I'll have to wait a little longer than that. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Kobus. Wow, Kobus, what a fascinating discussion. I'm so glad we had the chance to speak with Elizabeth again. Again, I can't overstate for people who are not familiar with her work, how she's incredibly important. And again, people may not agree with everything she says and the way she frames things, but you can't really disagree with the fact that she is a a very important voice in this discourse. And it's really such an honor for us to be able to have her on the show to share some of her her insights and some of the details behind her book. But uh, let's put this into an African and Global South context. One of the things that she said, and she was really unmistakable in in her assessment, that the spread of Chinese autocracy around the world comes at the expense of American promotion of democracy. So autocracy and democracy. And again, as we're thinking about the battle over where countries in Africa fall on the ledger, say, supporting Russia or supporting the United States in the European Union to condemn Russia, 
when you hear Elizabeth talking about the zero-sum game, that is, there is no compromise on these values issues, how do you take that and put it into an African context? Well, it's a challenging question, you know, because, you know, obviously, you know, Africa has, has a very vibrant democratic culture, depending on the country. But Africa also has a lot of countries that not, are not only full-on autocracies, but still important. But even more complicatedly, they have a lot of countries that hover somewhere in between. You know, kind of they have countries with with troubled democratic processes, but who are st- who still kind of go through the the process of a, you know of of democracy. Um, you know, you you have you have everywhere on 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 the gradient, um, and so so then it 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 feels like you know. The democracies versus autocracies position, as it's articulated by, for example, the Biden administration and, and the State Department, is a you know kind of I think or to, the way that I see it was designed as a way to kind of cut through the noise and to try and kind of like cut to the heart of of what they see as as the as problematic Chinese influence. But I I fear that it actually introduces a lot more noise into the conversation because it then immediately becomes about who counts as a democracy and who doesn't, um, and then it raises a lot of questions about about kind of the the fact that the, the the that as any big power the United States needs to work with lots of different powers and and the United States has had working relationships with non democracies for a long time, so. So that's one problem. The, the the bigger problem, and you know, and and here I think it, it you know kind of I, I need to speak personally, is that um you know okay so so as an LGBT person I find the the you know kind of the this this example of rights of individual rights and particularly the the protection of LGBT rights as set by the United States I find it incredibly inspiring and and heartening um, and I know that many African governments and many African commentators and even listeners frequently use US pressure on LGBT rights on Africa as one of these examples of oh this is the kind of hoops that Africa has to jump through these is the kind of irrelevant kind of conditionalities that's being put on on cooperation with Africa you know okay let's agree to disagree but the um, but the you know so so I as as a, a member of this kind of particular persecuted minority I do find it very helpful and heartening that the United States is championing them around the world. At the same time, I have to say that we seeing, just for example, LGBT rights and a lot of other quite established rights being rolled back within the United States. You know, so so there's 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 a lot of anti-LGBT legislation coming through the pipeline in different United different American states at the moment. And we're also seeing, you know, assaults on on very like stores, like solid liberal values, like reproductive rights, like you know, kind of like voting rights, like all of all of these all of these issues. And I don't know where we put that conversation in this autocracies versus democracies, you know, kind of like, like division. You know, the 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 and and this isn't and this isn't only to to kind of paint a target on the United States. This is true for France. You know, we're seeing very kind of right wing creep in 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 France. We're seeing right wing creep in the United Kingdom. You know, particularly around transgender issues. And my question is, you know, kind of like, is this democracies versus autocracies division? Does that simply then gloss over this kind of rollback of rights that's happening within these established democracies? And what are we supposed to say about that? And then the other question that I brought up with Elizabeth, and just to pick up on what you're talking about, is if you're going to have these conversations on LGBT issues, on democracy, autocracy, you actually have to show up. You have to be present. 
And since the conversation with Elizabeth here in Southeast Asia, the United States canceled an ASEAN Leaders Summit. And you just, you, you just kind of look at this and you go, what are you guys doing? If you want to be in the space, you got to be here and you got to have the engagement. And the same week that Joe Biden was supposed to have had a meeting with 10 ASEAN leaders, that same week, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi invited three ASEAN foreign ministers up to China for meetings. And you just can see how the competition is, is playing out. And, and you just wish that the United States would get in the game and to, if they're really going to have this competition. But at this point, they're just not showing up. Let's shift gears very quickly. And we're going to start a new routine on the show once a week. And we're going to start checking in with some of our editors elsewhere in Africa. As you may have heard for regular listeners of the show, we have launched a new French website, French language website, and a new Arabic language website. And so we are thrilled to have on our program, back on our show, he's been on our show a number of times, our Francophone editor, Jeronima, to tell us a little bit about some of the stories that he's working on. Also, we've started now a regular live Twitter spaces discussion that Jero and Kobus are hosting at 5 p.m., South Africa time. Is that correct, Kobus? 5 p.m.? Yes. Okay. Yes. A very good afternoon to you, Giraud. Good afternoon, Eric. Good afternoon, Kobus. Well, let's start since we're on the subject of great power rivalries in Africa. Giraud, you held on Thursday a very lively Twitter Spaces event with Sanusha Naidu from the Institute for Global Dialogue in Johannesburg. You and Kobus got together. Uh, a lot of folks turned out for this conversation. Why don't you just give us the, 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 the headlines for what came from that discussion and what you guys were talking about? Yeah, Eric, it was really an interesting conversation on, Ch on a Chinese based, uh, Chinese military base in, uh, in Equatorial Guinea. We know that it's been a while that the U.S. Africa, African command has been talking about it in, in Africa, in, in, in Equatorial Guinea, but also in the, in, in the state where they've been mentioning that they fear that China is about to open a military base in Equatorial Guinea. So yesterday in the, in the discussion, it was really interesting to have feedback and uh, uh, take from different people, I would hear, I would list some of those texts and copies, feel free to jump in and to complete, uh, to add some of the stuff I might forget. We talked about, for example, Africa Agency. We've been talking about this issue about Chinese base uh, in South, uh, in uh, in Africa, but we don't talk much about Africa Agency in that debate, how China, uh, Africa as, as a continent has to play its security policy in those strategy. We know that we have so many bases in Africa, France base, uh, American Based on, we, can, we have a Chinese one who's already in Djibouti, and the one that might or might not be open in Equatorial Guinea open up the debate about what Africa stands on its own security policy in the region of in West Africa. Because we also do know that opening a military base in a country comes up with some consequences in terms of political stability within that same country and within that same region. And what's the Africa agency in that debate? What's Equatorial Guinea stands on that on that issue. So far, we've heard a lot about what China, what U.S. wants to do, what what U.S. is afraid of, what US, U.S. is afraid of. China, we haven't heard that much about what they say. But in Africa, it's complete silence. African Union, nothing to nothing to say about it, and Equatorial Guinea playing, you know, the middle game, not nothing to say much about it. So we talk of, of course, we talk about the impact that it may have in terms of stability into the region itself. 
what the CDO is saying, same silence more that we have, we, we've been receiving from them. But Sanusha made some interesting point about how that debate become a self-sustained narrative, just like it started in December. And from then, you have now this bowling effect where everybody's not talking about it, referencing to that debate, to that debate, using the same Wall Street Journal that was that became basically the original uh, starting point of that debate and everybody talking about it. And you have now different elements coming into coming as a bundle and that seems to tell you yes china is about to build a base in uh, in uh, in equatorial guinea even though because of the sensitivity of the topic because it's a military issue security issue there are many elements that we still don't have at hand but we see how much that debate then that discussion become a thing and let's see how the narrative itself gonna grow or if it's gonna die it's gonna die down by itself And again, we don't have any confirmation or evidence to suggest whether or not the story is true or not. The Wall Street Journal article that Giraud was talking about was really a hack job in many respects because it only included U.S. government sources. And so, again, this is a a question that is still up for grabs. Cobus, though, it brings up the interesting point that a similar dynamic is underway right now in the Solomon Islands. And a very similar you, you know, disagreement over agency and, you know, the United States now is being pressured to get involved. Australia has been saying if China does, in fact, build a base in the Solomon Islands in the South Pacific, that that will completely throw off the security balance there. You've been following that in the newsletter quite a bit. Do you see some parallels between the discourse over the proposed base in the Solomon Islands and the discussion in Equatorial Guinea? Yes, this is this is a real feast, a discourse feast. <laughs> um, like if, if I were teaching a class on China-Africa discourse from the global north, I'd be like assigning this topic because it's incredibly revealing to see how both European and Australian, um, you know, stakeholders talk about these places. Um, in both cases, you know, the, this this is referring to, to European think tanks in relation to Equatorial Guinea and then um, Australian government officials. Both of them have 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 literally used the word our backyard to dis- to describe these countries um and you know so so there is this kind of combination in both sides of this very high dudgeon um like almost hysterical reaction to the possibility of a base you know like oh this changes everything like you know this you know the, the a european think tanker that i that i was reading was was saying this kind of will marginalize europe and turn it into a bystander in its own you know it's its own kind of backyard and and, and so on so it's kind of like almost like hysterical reaction to it and then at the same time you know <laughs> um kind of like somewhat shamefaced kind of like acknowledgement or frequently not acknowledgement actually just just you know one 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 when one starts reading more and more you start realizing that that these countries have been so completely neglected by you know kind of diplomatically economically you know that that you get the feeling of of these kind of European and Australians suddenly kind of waking up, rushing to a world map, trying to find where that country is, and then, you know, kind of trying to quickly read up what what they what the last time was that they actually engaged with them. You know, it, it, it gives you that, I'm exaggerating, but it gives you that, you know, that kind of feeling of like suddenly kind of realizing this, this you know, suddenly being woken up by this crisis, you know, um, but then coding it in this kind of like high hysteria language of, of complete Chinese takeover. So I was reading today, an article about the what the U.S. response should be, and, and people in Washington are saying that the Americans should throw a lot of money at the Solomon Islands, and Australia should throw a lot of money at the at the Australia at the Solomon Islands in order to discourage them from taking the base. And so it got me thinking.
speaking COBUS, you know, there's a, a, a an economic crisis in a number of African countries now, right? <laughs> so here's my thought. Since the Chinese will not say anything, right? They have not said a peep on Equatorial Guinea. So you kind of have a, a free reign to say, you know what? China talked to us about putting a base in our country. Mm. Yep. Yep, they did. Yeah. Yep, they did. Mm-hmm. And it'll take mm-hmm. you $2 billion to relieve some of our financial pressures today to get rid of that conversation with the Chinese. How about it, boys? Yeah, I mean, Mali Mali just, you know, kind of announced a, a possible default, you know, kind of so maybe, you know, kind of next <laughs> week we might hear about a possible base. These are desperate times. So, folks, if you are in the Global South country and you want to raise some money fast, just tell them that you're talking with the Chinese about a base. And based on what we're seeing, you're going to get money raining from heaven down on you. I'm almost sure of it. So that's free advice to any policymaker in the Global South. Okay, Giro, let's talk about some of the stories that you're working on this week and what you've got planned for next week on Projet Afrique Chine. For this week, it's been really interesting how China is now is facing some difficulties in the mining area in many African countries. Last week, um, the, uh, the not Equatorial Guinea, but uh, the other Guinea summoned all mining company working in the bauxite area to come up with a plan to build refinery in the country and to see how they can put an aluminum plant in the country. So this is the kind of issue that China now has been facing in various African countries. We saw that in the deal they signed in the bauxite, still a bauxite deal in Ghana, where it came with the conditionality to build a refinery and aluminum plant in the country. And we also see see that discourse coming up into the DRC with the cobalt, where the government has been now expressing its willingness to see some more more cobalt being refined and built um, to see how they can build um, um, uh, EV EV manufacturers in in the country. So China now will be facing those kind of demand more and more for for many African countries, especially for countries like uh, Guinea and DRC, those countries who have huge, huge reserve of natural resources that, that in, 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 on, on the global scale. We, we know that DRC is the first one in terms of cobalt. And now we also know that Guinea has the largest bauxite uh, reserve in, in the world uh, among Australia and other countries. So China now, how to navigate in, those, in, in, that, in that context will have to, to adapt and to see how you can make some concerns to those countries because we do understand that doing mining business in those countries comes with a lot of a lot of risk because those countries are naturally unstable and corruption and the really bad governance in the mining industry it's also so when you put that in the balance when you have Chinese investment coming to those areas they're facing risk so when governments are adding up those conditionality without really fighting corruption without fighting bad governance in the mining industry we see that it may create friction between Chinese investment and of those African countries. But however, however, China is is going through a it's it, it an economic change shift, an economic shift in the country, and environmental change too. So there is opportunity now. We see that many refineries have been closing up in China for environmental issues. There are opportunities for African countries now to to ask and to receive those kind of uh, treatment plant in Africa to have to start to building up their place in the value chain of uh, of the miner of the mining resource they've been producing. So there is an opportunity for both China, now it can be it will be more easy to refine in Africa because it's cheap, but it can only be cheap if Africa first address the issue of bad governance and corruption and also walk into solving the issue of the basic infrastructure required for those uh, 
uh, for those refineries in those countries. Okay, so if people want to follow what you're reporting, where can they find you? What's the website? Yes, if people want to follow, they can go on projetafriquechine.com, www.projetafriquechine.com, or they can follow us on Twitter on Afrique, Afrique with a K, Afriquechine, and you're going to have, you're going to be, you know, receiving everything that we cover about China in Africa, and but now it's going to be in French. So there is an opportunity for you to come and join us and to really follow the coverage of Africa, China, Africa in French. And also, Giro is hosting the Afrique Chine podcast. So if you want to practice your French or if you speak French, you want to check out his podcast. He's putting out a show every week. Once again, that's Afrique Chine, A-F-R-I-K-K-C-H-I-N-E. Uh, look for it everywhere you're getting your podcasts. Uh, Giro, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. We'll have you back on the show again next week for another update. Kobus, thank you from South Africa. Of course, you and I will be back again next week. We're back to two shows a week now, everybody. Now that Giro's site's out and our Arabic site is out, uh, we are uh, back up to our regular schedule now. So we'll be back again on early in the week we put a show out, usually Tuesday or Wednesday and then another one on Friday, always on Friday. So Cobus and I will be back again next week with another episode. Until then, for Cobus Fenstaden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. For more information about the China Africa Project, go to chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs>